He the speech is an expression of ideas that people have, so we really have to try and figure out a way to stop those people having those ideas. It's a sacred right for us to be able to think our thoughts and share them so long as we are not inciting or threatening violence against each other. We should squeeze the oxygen out of all these few individuals who are bigots or who are trying to promote hatred and make sure they are suffocated. They will not have any space in New Zealand. Kia ora, I'm Philippa Tommy and welcome to Insight. After the Christchurch mosque shootings, the government announced it was fast-tracking a review of the country's hate speech laws. The moves fired up some politicians and free speech crusaders who say the sacred right to freedom of expression is under increasing threat. But minority communities say they're often being subjected to hate speech and will continue to be targeted if laws don't change. For Insight, Katie Scotcher has been investigating the state of hate speech versus free speech. I'm standing outside the Auckland Hebrew Congregations building in the city centre and I guess if you weren't really looking for this building in particular it'd be quite easy to miss. It's just a standard brick building, there's nothing particularly special about it from the outside. But when you take a closer look there are three or four security cameras on the outside of the building pointing towards the street here and there are two heavy, well they look quite heavy doors uh, at the main entrance here that you actually need a security card to get through. So security is definitely very tight. As you enter the building, there's a small basket of kippots or skull caps to the right and a large courtyard ahead. There are two synagogues here. Juliet Moses from the New Zealand Jewish Council shows me around one of them. What we have here is the, the Ark, is what we're looking at here, uh, which is where all our, inside all our Torah scrolls are kept. So they're the, the sort of holiest, well, yeah, they're our holy scrolls. So on a, a Sabbath, which is for us starts on Friday night and ends on Saturday night. Uh, on a Saturday morning we will read from the scrolls where we're up to, so each week you'll be at a, a different place in there. The space is so peaceful, it makes it hard to imagine four children being stabbed and injured here in an anti-Semitic attack in the 1990s. Juliet Moses remembers tighter security measures being installed at the centre in the wake of the attack. This is her place of worship and has been since she was a child. She had very few experiences of hate speech and anti-Semitism growing up. I look at that now and I think that probably I probably was very lucky. I, I don't think that was an unusual experience at, at that time, but I think it would probably be an unusual experience now. Her two teenage sons' experiences are an example of that changed attitude. His friends heard... Um, another boy mutter under his breath, Jews shouldn't be allowed. And um, the other one was told on the bus that Hitler was a great man and, and this boy did a hail Hitler salute. Juliet finds it difficult to speak about how that hate and anti-Semitism has made her sons feel. My younger son did once say to me in relation to that, I'm, it makes me feel embarrassed to be... Jewish, and that you know, I, I struggled to talk about that without um, getting a bit tearful because that to me is about the worst thing that you can ever hear is that you know your son is embarrassed of the 
the identity that he was born with. He he didn't choose. Um, he was he was born Jewish, because he's been mocked for it and, and belittled. Religion isn't the only focus of increasing amounts of hate speech in New Zealand. Chris Ford was born with cerebral palsy and uses a wheelchair. He describes some of the hate speech he experienced when growing up. I was called words and had pejorative terms used against me, such as epi and crap and so forth. It was always in a very negative tone. It was in a very subjective tone. It was very harmful to me. It was very hurtful. It lowered my self-esteem. It lowered my ability to be able to be confident sometimes. H McArdle is busy at the Allen Melville Community Centre in central Auckland. The space usually blends into the surrounding grey cityscape, but it's been decorated with rainbows and bright neon signs for the Auckland Pride Festival. H is gender diverse and says they're often subjected to hateful speech when they're walking down the street and online. But when I asked about the impact hate speech has had on their life, one experience stood out. I remember in a, a domestic violence situation that I observed, I, I intervened, and the people who knew, the people who I was intervening between, um, knew me, and they just, uh, as this girl kind of pushed me to the floor, she goes, "Don't get involved, you he, she, it thing. I don't even know what you are. What's going on with your gender?" Both H and Chris have felt the impacts of hate speech but only Juliet's sons could make a specific hate speech complaint to the police or Human Rights Commission. Under current laws, it is only an offence to use speech that will excite hostility or bring into contempt a group or person on the grounds of their colour, race or ethnicity. Gender identity, sexual orientation, religion or disability aren't protected grounds. Massey University professor Paul Spoonley has been researching hate speech for decades. It's evident in the stacks of research that tower over him in his Auckland office. He says hate speech in this country is on the rise and it's affecting most, if not all, of New Zealand's minority communities. But it's impossible to measure the scale of hate speech here because no one is keeping track. Most countries around the world, the US, Germany, the UK all have agencies which collect data on hate speech and make that publicly available so people can know whether they're in the government or in communities they know the extent of the current evidence concerning hate speech in that country the police don't record the number of crimes motivated by hatred they declined to be interviewed but said in a statement they're working actively to better record hate crimes but how or when changes will take place isn't clear. The Human Rights Commission does investigate complaints of unlawful discrimination and racial disharmony, but their statistics don't cover hate crime in general terms. It received more than 1,600 complaints of unfavourable treatment because of race, colour or nationality between 2013 and 2018. In that same time window, there were just under 600 complaints of racial disharmony or harassment, which are considered to be more serious. The hate speech Chris Ford experienced growing up was all in person, but he says the internet has changed that. He remembers a comment that was made in response to one of his blog posts. The fact that I was a wheelchair user was mentioned and that a person, an anonymous respondent said, 
that you should get out of your wheelchair and in particular that I should go out and visit the world before propagating the views that I had. I don't mind people who want to actually engage in reasonable debate. However, that was identifying a personal characteristic, and I was particularly angry about that, very upset. The internet is where Juliet Moses experiences hate speech regularly too. Things like, you know, Hitler should have finished the job, or Holocaust denial, so you sort of get both sides of the coin, Other, uh, you know, either Hitler didn't do a good enough job on the Holocaust or the Holocaust never happened. That kind of stuff is very common. And, yeah, all, all sorts of things, you know, stereotypes about money, um, conspiracy theories. Last year, NetSafe released its second report into online hate speech in New Zealand. It showed the number of adults who have been targeted with online hate speech increased by 4% in the last 12 months to 15%. More than a third of people's experiences of online hate speech occurred after the Christchurch mosque attacks, and Muslims, Hindus, people with disabilities and members of the rainbow community were targeted at higher rates. The Harmful Digital Communications Act is a relatively recent law, and unlike the Human Rights Act, it protects people on the grounds of colour, race and ethnicity, as well as religion, gender, sexual orientation and disability. Mustafa Furuk is the president of the Federation of Islamic Associations of New Zealand. He says the internet remains a place where harmful views spread and can largely go unchallenged. We have very young people now who access, people from nine years old are able to get on the internet and search and find information. Very gullible, very impressionable, and they find all these hate speeches and all sort of stuff, and they begin to think that maybe that is something okay, particularly if that's coming from people that look respectable, look powerful, look successful. In the wake of the Christchurch mosque shootings, Mustafa Furuk called on the government to change the laws that apply to hate speech in New Zealand. 51 Muslims were killed when a lone gunman entered their places of worship and opened fire. The attack was live-streamed on social media and the accused gunman's manifesto was also shared online. Both were quickly banned and deemed objectionable by the chief censor. Uh, we have politicians who are populists, who are unscrupulous, they say whatever they want to say, they ride on hatred, they ride on uh, racism and all sort of stuff, and bigotry, and yet, you know, they you know, find themselves in power and people think that, you know, that is right, and, uh, and they get away with it. And uh, that's why I think it is important that uh, 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 we have a level of control on free speech. Chris Ford wants to see the laws changed too. Disabled people and other currently excluded groups are fair game in terms of being able to be at the hard end of hate speech. Juliet Moses agrees the protections need to be widened. For that kind of protection not to be afforded to, for example, the Muslim community, I think is, um, you know, there's a vacuum there and that does need to be filled. There has only ever been one successful criminal prosecution for hate speech in New Zealand, and it was in the 1970s. Far-right activist and leader of the National Socialist Party, Colin King Ansell, was put behind bars for producing thousands of anti-Semitic pamphlets and putting them in Auckland letterboxes. 
but on appeal he was released and fined $400. Paul Spoonley says the current hate speech laws aren't fit for purpose. We've had laws since the 1970s, firstly the Race Relations Act and then more recently the Human Rights Act, which do specify that speech um, which is offensive and which is likely to excite ill will and hostility is deemed inappropriate. Uh, But unfortunately, the grounds for that are very limited. So what we've left out are things like religion, um, gender or sexual orientation, family status. We now need to look at both how we extend the existing law, but also to think about how we deal with it. Because I think there are issues, particularly issues around limiting free speech, So we've got to find that balance, we've got to find that sweet spot. It's a sweet spot the current government is trying to find. The Justice Minister, Andrew Little, announced he was fast-tracking a review of the country's hate speech laws after the March attacks. At the time, he said the current laws weren't thorough or strong enough and needed to change. I got a lot of correspondence from communities and populations who were saying, who were describing their experience of what they saw on social media, what they saw in the community... And it raised the question about whether the provisions we've got did enough to afford some sense of protection to minority communities. The Ministry of Justice and the Human Rights Commission are still reviewing the laws. The agencies have consulted more than 120 people from different communities across the country. The Minister has been given a preliminary report based on those meetings. Whether for statutory change, whether for programs that the Human Rights Commission can run um, that will that will start to address the issue, you know, whether we can make the complaints processes in the Human Rights Commission more accessible and, and support the Human Rights Commission better to run good mediation and conciliation processes to deal with those who are aggrieved by you know, what they hear and see. Andrew Little wouldn't say if the laws will change to protect minority groups excluded from the current laws. Justice and the Human Rights Commission are now speaking to academics about where the line on free speech is drawn. Mr Little will be presented with another report at the end of that consultation. The line drawing exercise is difficult and that's why it does pay for us to take our time to get it right. I think it is pretty clear from you know, the developments and you know, the, the opportunities that people have for expressing their views over the last 10 years means that we do need to make sure that the law um, properly reflects the harm that is currently being done without compromising those basic human rights about freedom of speech. Paul Spoonley says the hate speech threshold needs to remain high. You don't want it to be so low that you then um, restrain free speech and the fact that somebody's offended is not the basis for, for reacting. But he says things like humour often make it harder to determine what should constitute hate speech and what shouldn't. All of that said, we have seen an escalation in hate speech. I think it's having an impact upon our society, New Zealand society, in ways that undermine group identity and overall social cohesion. So please, please do not continue to argue that free speech is undermined by this because by doing so you are really sending a very clear message to minority, ethnic and religious and gender groups which says that what you're experiencing does not matter 
free speech is more important. I'm Katie Scotcher and you're listening to an RNZ Insight programme on free speech versus hate speech. Massey University's decision to cancel a speaking engagement by former National Party leader Don Brash has ignited a firestorm about free speech. Dr Brash was due to speak in a students' politics club in Palmerston North tomorrow, but the university says it scrapped the booking due to concerns over hate speech and violence from protesters. An urgent call is going out to the vice-chancellors and councils of all New Zealand universities from a group of academics concerned about the state of free speech on campus. The University of Auckland will not remove white supremacist signs from campus. Uh, the university's vice-chancellor says it's, quote, unfortunate but won't condemn them as it's free speech. The role universities play in protecting free speech and academic freedom has come under increasing scrutiny. By law, universities are expected to be a critic and conscience of society. But there's growing unease, with many questioning where the line of academic freedom should be drawn to protect students from hate speech. That tension came to a head when Massey University's Vice-Chancellor banned Don Brash from speaking at its Palmerston North campus in 2018. Jan Thomas ordered the Politics Society event to be cancelled for what she said were security reasons. But emails later obtained under the Official Information Act showed Dr Thomas didn't want the university to be seen as endorsing racist behaviour. Chris Ryan from the University of Auckland's Debating Society had invited Don Brash to take part in a debate about free speech on campus months earlier. It was meant to be a low-key affair, but after Massey banned Don Brash, the debate was given a whole new life. 500 people showed up, some genuinely interested in what Don Brash had to say, along with protesters equipped with megaphones and banners, and a contingent of TV crews and journalists. I, I literally at times just thought the debate was not going to happen. Like As people came in, you know, pe- the speakers came on onto the stage and people started chanting, and I was just like, well, there's not going to be... It's not going to happen. The speaker's just not going to be allowed to speak. In the lead-up to the debate, university management and the debating society worked in overdrive to prepare contingency plans and ensure the safety of students. Chris Ryan, who is now working as a lawyer, says banning Dr Brash was never an option for the University of Auckland. The fact that he came speaks to the point of the debate, that is that where we draw the line as to what type of speech is acceptable is contested. You know, like for every, you know, chant the protesters had, people who supported Don Brash speaking had a chant to go alongside that and so I think it would have kind of undermined the point of the debate if we had decided that he shouldn't be allowed to speak. Annie O'Brien opening a Speak Up for Women's Let's Talk About Self-Sex ID event in Auckland at the start of last year. The group was set to hold its second event, Feminism 2020, at Massey's Wellington campus last year. Speak Up for Women is described by critics as anti-trans because of its campaigns against the inclusion of trans women in sport and against gender self-identification on birth certificates. Because of the backlash the university faced following the brash ban, spokeswoman Annie O'Brien assumed they wouldn't have any trouble holding an event on campus. But after a petition was signed by more than 6,000 people, the university barred the group. I definitely felt at that point 
a bit hopeless. I kind of thought we were going to end up with a megaphone in a, in a field or something. Um, and we would have done that if we had to. And she felt silenced. I wasn't able to defend myself or speak up for women against the stuff that was being said about us. And that really was hard. Um, it meant that no matter how many times I, I try to say, like, we don't hate trans people, um, we're not a hate group, it just was completely ignored and then we weren't going to get a chance to speak at our own event about it. And it's, it was, it was quite um, suffocating. Like it, it was a feeling of just feeling so misrepresented. As a member of the Rainbow community, H. McArdle was concerned about the impact the group's view was having on the trans community. They say everyone is entitled to their own views, but questions if sharing them in such a public way is the right thing to do. That speech was causing great harm to a community that has no social, cultural or legal protections in Aotearoa. The people who were speaking and wanting to speak on broader and broader platforms were protected from non-discrimination laws. So I saw a great imbalance of power Annie O'Brien says universities are the right place to express opinions not everyone accepts. Their role is in legislation to be a critic and conscience of society and we can't go on like this because not only um, will we be um, depriving, I guess, a whole generation of students of um, of getting a, like a vast kind of um, challenging education... With the battle over where universities should fall on free speech far from over, Chris Ryan suggests debates are the best way to deal with extreme or controversial topics on campus. If Don Brash had said something that was offensive, then the other side would have been able to rebut that and you know, point out, probably with quite a lot of ease, through the contest of ideas, that that is a bad idea and everyone would have seen it refuted live. And I, th- I think that is the power of a debate format. Like the Don Brash speech, the Feminism 2020 event also found a new home in Parliament's Banquet Hall, hosted by the ACT Party leader David Seymour. He said at the time, Speak Up for Women has a right to conduct what is a legitimate debate without being subject to intimidation, and it's a theme he has carried into discussions this year with party faithfuls. Please welcome David Seymour. More than 70 ACT supporters packed into a small Auckland cafe on Waitangi Day for David Seymour's Make Aotearoa Great Again event. They listened intently as he stressed the importance of free speech. It's a sacred right for us to be able to think our thoughts and share them so long as we are not inciting or threatening violence against each other. Last year, David Seymour revealed a suite of policies that include repealing existing hate speech laws, abolishing the Human Rights Commission and cutting funding to universities that limit free speech. He says the current government plans to restrict the rights to freely express. If you're allowed to think and say whatever you like, well, anything could go wrong. You might think the wrong thing. And worse still, you might even say it. That's why they want so-called hate speech laws. Someone, somewhere, would be employed as an agent of the state with the legal power to stop you and perhaps punish you 
for saying things that are judged to be wrong. Annie O'Brien is fearful of any possible law changes. She believes people should be able to say what they want as long as they're not inciting violence. We might feel comfortable now with Andrew Little and Jacinda Ardern being in charge of these kind of laws and putting them through and we might go, OK, we're happy that this is um, what we're allowed to say, what we're not allowed to say, but politics swings around really quickly. I mean, you can look around the world and see some of the interesting characters that are now in charge of the free world and if those laws are there then, we can't switch them off. For me, it's being conscious of the fact that if we give the power to the state to dictate what we can and can't say, it can come around and bite us really quickly. While the focus on this country's hate speech laws was renewed after the March 15th attacks, there is no sign of any decision ahead of the anniversary in a few weeks' time. Instead, Andrew Little has indicated any proposed changes to hate speech laws will be revealed by this year's general election in September. As a leader in the Muslim community, Mustafa Farouk says it's going to take more than legislative changes to combat hate speech in New Zealand. I think the changes have to come both through law and education. And where we need to start is from our schools, from our kindergartens, our primary schools, high schools, universities. We need to encourage, you know, the learning and teaching of, you know, uh, 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 togetherness, how people can be free to speak whatever they want to speak without hurting someone else. Paul Spoonley would like to see the government change the law and introduce an agency to record complaints of hate speech here. He'd also like to see more emphasis put on education too. I'm very concerned, for example, about anti-Semitism. And of course, I'm now talking to generations which are very far removed from any connection, even sort of a uh, one removed connection with the Second World War and with the show, the Holocaust. So... How do we then talk about genocide and something like the Holocaust in this modern world? And how do we talk about it in terms of making sure that our communities, young or old, whatever their ethnicity, religion, gender, whatever, um, how can we have a fact-driven, evidence-based, respectful discussion about that? Because if you go online, you're not going to get that. But disability rights activist Chris Ford is feeling optimistic about potential changes to hate speech laws. If it's well enforced, if it's backed by education, if it's backed by real community efforts to also deal with hate speech and also other forms of discrimination, then I think it can be successful. It will be some time before the government reveals the outcome of its review of our hate speech laws. The minister, Andrew Little, had hoped to present any proposed changes by the end of last year, but says they will now become clear before September. That programme was written and presented by Katie Scotcher. If you'd like to keep up with Insight, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Insight page on the RNZ website, or wherever you get your podcasts. And do leave a rating wherever you can. Next week, we hear from Vanuatu about the generation stolen to work on plantations in Australia. 
I'm Philippa Tommy, and that's all from Insight for today. Great to have you listening, and do join us again next time.